0: Would you take your Bibles tonight and turn to Second Samuel chapter 20 with me? Second Samuel chapter 20. From the time that David sinned, the last nine chapters really record the ugly events that follow this immoral sin of David against Uriah and against God. And most of these events here that we see in chapters nine, or these chapters 12 through 20 are directly connected to the sins of David. Amnon learned from his father that he could take whatever woman he wanted in order to satisfy his pleasure, and so he took his sister. Absalom learned from his father that he could kill whomever he wanted to secure what he wants, and so he killed his brother. Joab is willing to go to any extreme to maintain his position, Civil war and betrayal uh, uh, abound in these chapters following David's sin. And if God were not working behind the scenes to establish a kingdom, then David would be left to a state of absolute despair. Because his sin was largely the cause of many of these horrific events. But God is working behind the scenes to establish his kingdom. God is in control. He is raising up kings as he pleases and tearing down others. Sometimes he does it through the obedience of his people. Sometimes he does it in spite of the disobedience of his people. And many times he does it even when the enemy seems to be winning. The consequences of David's sin have been the driving theme throughout these last nine chapters. And in chapter 20, the consequences of his sin seem to come to an end with this final revolt against David's kingdom. But even in this story, we see David's former problems, his, his, uh, his past sins start to creep up and cause David to be paralyzed in making choices. That he is unwilling to make the right choice when it's his turn because of his past sin. And yet God is still working in spite of David's reluctance to do what is right. Chapter 20. Let me begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel... So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bikri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him along with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri when they were at a large stone which is in Gibeon Amasa came to meet them now David was dressed in his military attire and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened fastened at his waist and as he went forward it fell out Joab said to Amasa is it well with you my brother and Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a, a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. As soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Bethmaica, and all the Bearites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel, Bethmaica, And they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Then a wise woman called from the city, Here, here, please tell Joab, come here, that I I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adarim was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was scribe and Zadok and Abiathar were priests and Ira the Jairite was also a priest to David. This passage is about the betrayal of Sheba. Sheba takes an opportunity here to, to uh, capitalize on the dissension that is in the, the nation of Israel, particularly the northern tribes. And so he decides that because there's still this dissension going on, this is his opportunity to take them and have, them, have those people follow after him rather than after David. And yet, as we just read, betrayal has a bitter end. Betrayal has a bitter end. First thing we see here in verse 1 is the seed of betrayal in verse 1, which is discontentment. The seed of betrayal, which is discontentment. There is this worthless fellow whose name is Sheba, And he said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Notice how he's described there in verse 1 as a worthless fellow. This title comes from the same Hebrew word that describes Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2. It's also the the name that's describing the mocker of the newly anointed king Saul in 1 Samuel 10. It's the, the name that's given to Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. It's also given to the fighting men who don't want to share the spoils with the 200 men who stayed back. They wanted to keep the spoils from themselves in 1 Samuel 30. And David calls them worthless men because they failed to see that victory belongs to the Lord. So even though you are the ones who actually engaged in the battle, you should not withhold the spoils from your brothers who stayed back. And it's also the same title that David gives to Shimei in 2 Samuel 16. We We talked about Shimei last week. Here, this name, worthless fellow, is given to Sheba, who was not concerned about the best interests of the nation. He was not concerned about the best interests of God. He was selfish. He was a lowlife who wanted to capitalize on the opportunity to exploit the division and resentment in the nation in order to gain power for himself. He was a worthless fellow, or as The southerners might say, a waste of skin. The seed of betrayal. His discontentment. He, he, He feels that he senses this in the people and wants to capitalize on it. And the reason that he claims that he can betray the king is because his family had no part in David. We have no portion in David. He was of the family of Saul. What happened to Saul, right? Saul was the former king, and all this great inheritance was supposed to be passed down to Saul's family and now was passed over to David because David was now the king. And so Sheba, as a member of Saul's extended family, felt slighted because his family no longer had power. They no longer had inheritance. And so he gives this traitorous rallying cry and tries to apply it to all the people of Israel. Listen, we don't have any part in David. David is from Judah. We're not from Judah. So you see how that works with all the other 11 tribes, essentially? He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And did they have an inheritance in Israel? Absolutely they did. Now, it wasn't on the same level as Judah, but that's not the point. He makes the claim that they had no inheritance from David. There's nothing good that would come out of David's kingdom. Jeroboam would use the same rallying cry cry to get the northern tribes of Israel to follow him, to leave the, the southern tribes of Israel to follow Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. We have no inheritance. We have no portion in David, so why don't we start our own group effectively? the danger of a traitorous leader who has the pulse of a nation is that he is able to turn the hearts of the resentful people away from God and away from their God-appointed king. What God expected of all the people was for them to follow God's appointed king who was David. And this man has the pulse of the nation. He knows there's some resentment there that is lingering, that is, un, uh, that is not taken care of. And so he capitalizes on it and, and turns these people against David. So the seed of betrayal turns into the spread of betrayal in verse 2. So all the men of Israel, apparently the ones that heard his message, withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bikri. So really this unity that David has that we saw last chapter has, has evaporated pretty quickly, hasn't it? The men of Israel, speaking of the northern ten tribes, are quick to hear this message from this traitorous man, and and to follow him quickly. Now remember that there is lots of unrest going on. Absalom had turned the nation against David, including the leaders of those tribes, right? Including David's number one, um, his number one council counselor, Ahithophel, and so the alliances had switched from David. To Absalom, but now that Absalom's dead, we saw last chapter, they had to switch back to David, but they weren't too confident that he was the best king to have over them. They still feel slighted. They still feel like they're not going to get their portion. And so, this message of entitlement and this message of neglect by Sheba is one that has a nice ring to the people, and they bought into it. And so, notice what happens. In verse 2, all the men of Israel withdrew from following David, but notice the second part of the verse, but the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king. So here you have the nation effectively being split again in, in two. The smaller tribes down in the south uh, are, are still following David, and and many of the northern tribes were, were, following, were following Sheba. In verses three through thirteen we see the danger of betrayal. The danger of betrayal. Sheba recognizes the the opportunity here to attack, to to really um he, he recognizes the the opportunity to capitalize on these people who are resenting David's leadership, and now David recognizes that he needs to quickly attack Sheba. He cannot let this go. Because like with Absalom, as he let it go over time, what happened? their support of Absalom actually became stronger. And then it was harder to with, withdraw their grip from Absalom's authority. And so David comes back from Jerusalem to get things in order in verse 3. And the first thing that he does is he he takes care of these concubines. Remember, one of the areas of responsibility that he had, one of the things that that had been... Um, given to him likely from Saul's throne was this, these lesser wives, these concubines. Sounds like in verse 3 that, that he's actually causing harm to them. Notice what he does there. He took the ten women and the concubines whom he had left to keep the house and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death living as widows. So we look at it at first glance it looks like, well, he, he locked them up Give them enough to eat, but he left them as widows and never had anything to do with them. Again, it sounds like he's, he's uh, being cruel to them, as if he's imprisoning them until they die. But the author doesn't exactly say what is going on. It could be that, that two things were playing back in David's mind when he arrives back in Jerusalem. The first is, what I think is probably going on, is the prophecy of Nathan. In chapter 12, verse 11, when, he, when Nathan said to him on behalf of God, I shall take your wives before your eyes and I shall give them to your companion and he shall lie with your wives. You have done this in secret. I'm going to do this in the open. And that's exactly what happened with Absalom. So with that in mind, that prophecy probably served as a reminder to him coupled with the fulfillment of that prophecy. So Nathan said this was going to happen. This actually happened when Absalom slept with these women. Remember, he left them back at the palace when he fled. He took all of his men, but left them to care for the palace. And Absalom, Absalom used them, abused them effectively. He used them in order to show how much power he had, show his authority and to claim the throne. So could it be that David is considering these two things? The promise... I'm going to give these women to someone else and the fulfillment. Could it be that David is recognizing the consequences of his sin again? And so instead of allowing them to be in the bondage as lesser wives to a king, he cares for them until they die, setting them free effectively. No longer are they going to be used or abused Or used as objects, but rather David would care for their financial needs until the day of their death. Could it be that that's what's going on? Well, while David is tidying up his mess that his son had made, he now has to address this address this problem with Sheba's rebellion in verse four. And so he calls a newly appointed commander. And this is interesting because Joab is the most capable. He is the most equipped when it comes to battle, but for some reason, notice what what uh, David does in verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So here's your new appointed commander, Judah. It's Amasa. And here's your job. Here's your very first job as military commander. Go get the men of Judah, the fighting men, and bring them back here in three days. But, In verse 5, we see the purposeful delay of Amasa. The purposeful delay of Amasa. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. David's command is to gather the troops and return to him. Time is critical right now because delay will only intensify the problem of Sheba and will further galvanize the people underneath Sheba's rule. Sheba will be able to build a larger and more unified following and it will be harder and harder to remove their grip, the people's grip, from Sheba's leadership and return it back to David where it belongs. But Amasa is either incompetent or he's a traitor himself. The text tells us that he delays. He, he could have been... Actually, there's, one, there's a third option that he was clueless. He didn't know how to do it. He didn't know what to do. So he could have been clueless, he could have been incompetent, he knew what to do, but he was incapable, or he was a traitor. He knew what to do, but he purposely delayed so that the train, that, so that the, um, the, the train of Sheba's rebellion could gain some steam. And to me, it sounds like a purposeful delay in order to galvanize the armies against David. Remember, Amasa was the military commander of whom? Of Absalom. Right? And so maybe Amasa's heart was also turned away from David. And so when he gets an opportunity to stick the knife in David's back, he does it without looking like he's doing something too terrible. Perhaps Amasa's loyalties were still with his former master Absalom. He found it hard to submit to David. The author, author doesn't tell us for sure, so we we're left to guess. But again, I, I think this is a purposeful delay. In verse 6 we see, Authority granted to Abishai. So, with the failure of Amasa, he's gone and he hasn't come back. It's time to appoint someone else. So, as three days turns into four and four days turns into five, Sheba's message was gaining support and David's patience was growing thin and Amasa still hadn't returned. And so, David has to act. And so, he says, Abishai, notice he doesn't go back to Joab. Joab's still there, Joab's still capable. But instead he goes to Joab's brother Abishai. He's one of the mighty men, one of the 3 of the best fighters that they had, one of the best leaders, and so he chooses Abishai to be his interim military commander in verse 6. Notice what he says there. And David said to Abishai, "Now Sheba the son of Bicri will do us more harm than Absalom." See why David's so concerned about getting this done? Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So he's got this possibility that he can just leave, find himself a fortified city. We'll never find him. We'll never be able to capture him. So Abishai, you are the man. Go. Verses 7 through 10. Even though Joab is not asked, he takes the initiative. So here we see the initiative of Joab in killing the traitor. And again, I, I, the first the, the traitor that I'm speaking about is not Sheba initially, but but initially it's Amasa, the one who had the opportunity to take the troops and and work on behalf of David and catch capture uh, Sheba. So Abishai, in verse seven, gathers the men of Juba Judah, along with the king's foreign bodyguards, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Abishai catches up with his cousin Amasa. So. Joab and Abishai are brothers, and then Amasa's a cousin. And all of these are nephews of King David. So so they catch up with Amasa. Finally, Amasa's only traveled four miles in more than three days, probably almost a week by now. He hasn't gone very far. And then we don't really hear about Abishai the rest of the chapter. All we're hearing about is Joab and Sheba. And so Joab now becomes the central figure in the story. And notice what's going on here. Joab is working on behalf of David. Joab knows the threats to David's throne. He knows that his his throne is in danger of being destroyed. And he knows that Amosah's delay is only contributing to a crumbling nation. And Joab also knows that David has demoted him in favor of his cousin first and then his brother second. And so, for all these reasons, Joab seeks to defend his king, and to, I think, prove himself again as David's best leader. And so, in verses nine to ten, Joab comes to meet Amasa, his cousin. And in his in his belt, he has some kind of a dagger. And as he's approaching Amasa, the dagger falls onto the ground. And notice there, in verse in verse nine. At the end of the verse, Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So he takes him by the beard with his right hand. Apparently this is how they would greet one another. And that would leave his left hand, which is his non-strong non, non uh, strong hand, right? His, his weaker hand. This is not the hand you normally would use for battle. So if, if, de, if Joab was going to do something, if Amasa expected Joab to do something, he would do it with his right. But his right hand's up here in a vulnerable position so with his left hand he reaches down and grabs the dagger that had fallen out and he uses that to to kill Amasa and Amasa doesn't even see it coming this is the fourth murder by Joab Joab had killed Abner because he was afraid that Abner was going to take his position Joab killed Uriah that May or may not have been murder on his part; it certainly was on David's part. He killed Absalom. Joab killed Absalom, when David specifically specifically told him not to, and now he kills Amasa. And while Joab doesn't do it, this whole thing the right way again, just like we saw him last time, he his intentions are good in that he's trying to protect David. So in verse ten, Joab and Abishai pursues Sheba. And now the leadership really is passed over to Joab because in verses eleven through thirteen it's all about Joab. It's Joab's young men. And notice the 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 cry, the battle cry from one of his young men. Whoever favors verse eleven, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So listen, it's time, it's time to get behind Joab. He is our leader part of the problem was that a bunch of people were stopping to look at Amesa who's laying there in the middle of the road bleeding out and so they finally decided let's move him over to the side cover him up and that way people will just follow and that's what they did. In verses 14 through 22 we see the bitter end of betrayal. The bitter end of betrayal. And this is talking about the betrayal of Sheba before we've seen the betrayal of Amasa by his delay And now we see the the traitorous Sheba. His betrayal ends in death. Traitorous Sheba could not be let go. He could not be ignored. He was—he had taken a stick to the hornet's nest of Joab's wrath, and Joab would not rest until rebellion had been squelched. The rebellion that followed, Sheba would die with its leader. Joab had to find him. So he went to all the tribes as he made his way north, and he finally caught up to him in Abel Bethmeica, which is a city that's just four miles west of Dan. And if you think about it on the map, the, 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 the Jews often say, when they're talking about all of Israel, they're saying from Dan to Beersheba. So from the northern part of Israel all the way to the south. And Abel Bethmeica is right up there, just to the west of Dan. So he had fled as almost as far as he could possibly go. To the edge of Israel. And there he is hiding in a city. And so Joab finds him. Maybe got some intel of some kind and found out that he's hiding in a fortified city. And so it's time to break the walls down. And So he builds a siege ramp which was made of boulders and rocks. It was an inclined ramp that would go up nearly to the top of the wall. The goal was not to get up to the top and then jump over. It would be way too fall, It would be a fall of death. So they had to Topple the wall in some way. So you topple it where it's the weakest, which is towards the top. So they would build a ramp that's close to the top and then use a battering ram to knock it through. And as they start working on this, a message comes from a wise woman in the village, in the, the city, who pleads with him on the basis of reason. Notice verse 18. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. At our city, is what she's saying. And thus they ended the dispute. So here, here's a city that you're trying to attack. We're known for our wisdom. When people have a dispute, they come to us. And we settle it. And so can we not settle this? Can we not negotiate something here instead of you destroying our city? And notice what will happen if you do, verse 19. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother. We could, we could insert the word city, even a mother city in Israel. In other words, we have some smaller villages that we help take care of. And if you destroy us, you're not only going to destroy us, but you're going to destroy all those people who are part of those villages. They're not going to have any sustenance. And Joab's response in verse 21, is listen. I don't want to destroy the city. Far be it, far be it from me. He says, I simply want to destroy the traitorous Sheba, the man who is opposed to God's king. And so the wise woman says, Well, how about if I send his head over the wall? And he says, That that would that would work just fine. We will be done here. And so she does. She gets the people in the town to gather him up and send his head over the wall. The manhunt has ended. In verses 23 through 26, we see the summary of responsibilities under David's restored kingdom. Here the author wants us to know the present state of where David's military and his kingdom was at. So he lists several of the roles. Notice who who retakes his position as military commander. Now, Joab was over the whole army of Israel. So it's not Amasa. Amasa's dead. It's not Abishai. Abishai didn't quite cut it. It's Joab. He's the one who takes initiative. He's the one who defends the king. He's the one who has the best interests, often, of the nation in mind. Obviously, many times he does it the wrong way. But he's restored to his position as military commander. Now, here's what's going on. David, you just think about the rest of the story. David is a passive leader in many cases, especially with Joab. David knows that Joab has sinned. David knows that Joab has committed murder and should not only be removed from his position as military commander, but also should likely be given capital have to have capital punishment carried out on him. And yet David doesn't do that. In fact, he restores him to his position kind of sweeps Joab's problems under the rug. Partially because he feels responsible. Again, he's being paralyzed by his own sin. Like, I caused a lot of these problems with Absalom. I caused a lot of these problems with Absalom's military commander, Abner. So, really, in some sense, Joab's terror was not all his fault. It's partially my fault. And so, so David's not willing to step up because of his past sin, because of the consequences of his sin. He's paralyzed from doing what is right until his deathbed. In first Kings chapter two, David finally tells Solomon you need to kill Joab. The other officers and advisors are listed there at, at the end of verse twenty three and on to the end of the chapter. So let's consider a principle and application night. Number one the principle, uh, the sting of betrayal reminds us of what we have done to God. The sting of betrayal reminds us of what we have done to God. David was slow to take action on those who betrayed him. Some of that had to do with the fact that he was responsible. He was partially responsible for their sin. Remember how I said the person who sins is always responsible for his sin. No one can force someone else to sin, but we certainly can influence someone to sin and we can, in that way, be partially responsible for their sin because we failed to act or we led them into temptation or something like that. David senses his responsibility in their sin. He senses the responsibility that he had in Amnon's sin and Absalom's sin and Joab's sin and Amos's sin and even perhaps Sheba's sin that David was recognizing that God is disciplining me because of my sin and part of the discipline comes on my own family and on my nation. And sadly for David, because he was so sensitive to his responsibility and their sin, he, he was paralyzed from properly responding to their sin when it needed to be responded to. And so in David's action and in david's inaction we see both the good and bad in the person of david the good is that he is sensitive about his sin right that's why god loved him that's why god called him the man after my own heart because he was willing to own up to the truth about himself he's willing to own up to his part he is a man who is compassionate and who is concerned about the collateral damage of his sin, he recognizes that my sin affects more than just me. It affects my family. It has affected my family. It has torn this nation apart. And so there's the good part in David. But the bad part is that because of this, he, he becomes passive. He's unwilling to He's unwilling to discipline those who need to discipline because he recognizes how terrible he is himself. He's unwilling to move on from his sin even though he's repented of it. That's the key. For David, he, he knew firsthand what it felt like to be betrayed. To have someone whom he had showered with so many gifts turn the knife on him. David knew what that felt like. And surely that must have helped him see how God must have felt when David in a moment of weakness betrayed God through adultery and murder. Remember, I God says, I have given you so much. I've given you a kingdom. I've given you your family. And if that weren't enough, David, I would have given you so much more. But you have betrayed me. And so even as a believer... We can turn our backs on God in our sin. And sometimes the sting of betrayal can actually, when we feel the sting of betrayal from someone else, right? Have you been there? Have you, have you been the giver of goodness and mercy to someone who has turned the knife back on you? Have you felt the sting of betrayal? Sometimes that helps us to see how God must feel when we turn the knife on Him. That that God must be thinking, listen, I've given you so much. You are the recipient of such great privilege. And I would have given you so much more and still you betray me. So I'm not, I'm not wishing betrayal on any of you. I'm not hoping that each one of us get that so that you know, we can feel what God must feel. But in the times when you are betrayed, and if you live long enough, you probably will be. In those times, remember what God must feel like when we turn our backs on Him. So let's apply this to ourselves, very similar to the principle, let your present persecution remind you of what you did to Jesus. The persecution that you now face may or not may or may not be self-inflicted. Right for David, his persecution was self-inflicted. It was partially his own responsibility. Very likely these things would not have taken place had David been faithful to God. But even if they were Undeserved, like perhaps Job's trials, Job's persecutions. No matter what, whether they're deserved or undeserved persecution, let your present ongoing persecution remind you of what Jesus has endured for the sake of your salvation. Right? That, that He has given us so much. And if what He has given us, His life, and all the attendant blessings and circumstances that come with being in Christ... If that were not enough, He would give us so much more. And yet, how many times have we taken His gifts and used them to create idols of our own making? How many times have we taken His gifts and used them to turn our backs on Him? And yet, here Jesus is like the loving Father in um, the the, the parable of the prodigal son. The loving Father is just waiting there on the porch open arms ready to forgive so that if we confess our sins he's there to embrace us because he's a faithful God a just God and a cleansing God when our persecutions come because of self-inflicted sins right when our persecutions come because we have caused this great wake of trouble behind us. Don't let your past sin of which you've repented cripple you or paralyze you from doing what is right today. Move on from it. Let the present sting of betrayal that you feel by those whom you have loved be a reminder of what a great God you serve. That the God who endured betrayal and persecution is our Savior. He's the one who adopted you into his family so that you could receive all of his great and precious promises. Let's pray. Father, we have uh, certainly um, felt persecution and betrayal at times, and sometimes it's because of our own sin. And although we don't always own up to it, we we often bring about persecution into our lives because of our failure to to obey your laws, because of our um, unwillingness to to stay within the bounds of of your regulations. And so, as a result, we experience some of the discipline that comes from from turning away from you and you like a loving father are teaching us how to depend on you and and the the great danger that there is in turning away from you there are other times lord when when we do not deserve the persecution we just simply are taking the persecution that was meant for Christ that because we represent him in this age many people will um, make us the objects of their wrath, and really, they—if they hated Christ, they—they they will hate us. And so we—we we feel that as well. And, and yet, in those times, whether we're betrayed for deserved reasons or undeserved, we often are paralyzed in, from doing the right thing. Where we often feel that that we are being abandoned by You. But Lord, we know that You will never abandon us. And the clearest way that You've shown Your nearness is in sending Jesus to be our Savior. And so how could You love us in any greater way than in sending Your Son? Thank You for doing that. Thank You for our salvation in Him. And Lord, thank You for suffering that comes because it helps to identify us with Christ. Lord, we pray that You'd help us to sort out as best we can the, the trouble that is going on in our lives and no matter if we can understand it fully or not in, in the moment, that we would depend on You and look to Your Word for how we can obey. And may Your Spirit guide us and give us strength in the day of weakness. May our eyes be fixed on You. We look to the hills from where our help comes from, because our help comes from You, our Lord. Pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.